Today we're going to continue our message in Judges, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish up the end of chapter 6 and move into chapter 7. And um, what we're going to see, particularly in chapter 7 today, is um, not so much Gideon's weak faith, but his obedient faith. He actually obeys. Um, but he doesn't even start off all that well, and he has some ups and downs along the way, which reminds me this uh, scholar, Dan Block, he wrote an article. Uh, it's too long for me to put out there, but the title of the article was great, and he portrays this in the article. Will the real Gideon please stand up? Gideon is a real mixed bag of obedience, lack of faith, pride, humility, um, and one of the challenges going through this, everybody knows Gideon is, is a real mixed bag. There are some times that I'm, I may portray him in a negative light, and you go, wait a minute, I think that's positive, or I say something's positive, and you go, well, that's negative. He's a confusing guy. Will the real Gideon please stand up? And you're going to see that um, in this passage. As we move through the whole Gideon stories, Judges 6, 7, and 8, um, you start off with this problem that is external, the Midianites, and that's going to be basically solved in chapter 7 because there's going to be this battle that that gets rid of the Midianites. Um, But the problem is going to be Gideon's pride, which leads to an internal problem of idolatry. They begin with oppression, they end with idolatry. And we saw a couple weeks ago in Judges chapter 6, God calling Gideon and Gideon's um, very cautious response to all of that. Um, but then Gideon actually does, after he kind of says, hey, I'm weak, you, you don't want me, I'm not the guy you need, um, he actually does go and tear down the altar um, at his father's house, and he builds an altar there to the Lord. So he, he kind of hems and haws before he does it, but then he actually follows through, and he is uh, doing what God wants him to do, and now God is calling him to go, and God says to him, I'm going to be with you as you defeat this Midianite oppression. And that moves us into what we're going to see at the end of chapter 6, and some, some requests that he makes that really come out of a weak faith. I don't think Gideon's an unbeliever. I don't think he has no faith. He just has weak faith, and I don't think Gideon is someone that we need to judge and point our fingers at and look down on, because he's so much like us. Um, I don't want you to be Um, looking at Gideon and and making him a hero or making him a villain. I want him to be someone who's who's actually pretty realistic. Um, And and his weak faith, he's looking for confirmation from God. And and sometimes that's what we do. But strong faith, kind of the opposite point you get from Gideon in this section, is that strong faith unhesitatingly obeys God first time every time. Um, The the story kind of starts off slow with God calling Gideon and telling him to go tear down his father's altar. And then um, he, he questions and he says, are you really think I'm the one to do it? And God says, yes. And so he does it even under the cover of darkness is when he goes in to tear down the altar. Um, and then God says, Gideon, you're, you're going to be the one who takes on the Midianites. And then we get this interaction Barry Webb says, just as events have started to move at lightning speed, he tore down the altar, now we're going to go get the Midianites. They slow down again as Gideon's early diffidence catches up with him and makes him hesitate. It's, he, he starts off, I'm not really the one, okay, or tear down the altar. I tore down the altar. God says, I need you now, go, you, you've dealt with the idolatry. Now I need you to go deal with the Midianites. 
and, and Gideon slows everything down. And this is the famous fleece passage, okay? And uh, I may mess you up in all of this. I may uh, slaughter a sacred cow for you. Uh, but Lawson Younger sets this up when he says, contrary to popular interpretation, these fleecings have nothing to do with discovering or determining God's will. The divine will is perfectly and absolutely clear in Gideon's own mind. These signs reveal his lack of faith. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, um, but I think a lot of people um, see this passage as instruction for how to determine God's will. I'm going to put out a fleece. Now, I think hardly any of us have ever literally put out a fleece, a piece of wool out there and said, you know, make it uh, wet around it and dry on it, or dry on it and wet around it. None of us, but we use this as kind of, I'm going to give God a test. I'm going to give um, this sign to see if this is what the Lord really wants me to do. And I want to tell you, that's not what this passage is is about. Um, God has made it clear there is no question what Gideon is supposed to do. Get the troops together, go and take on the Midianite army, and God will be with you and give you the victory. That's already made clear. But Gideon, in his um, lack of faith, he says, God, are, are you... Are you really going to be with me? Um, and it slows the passage down. Cheryl Exum, she says this, No character in the book receives more divine assurance than Gideon, and none displays more doubt. Gideon is significantly the only judge to whom God speaks directly, though this privilege does not diminish his faint-heartedness. Um, God has told him directly, Do this, I will be with you, you will win. Um, But let's look at Gideon's response. Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you promised, I mean, he even acknowledged, you promised you would save Israel by my hand. If you're going to do that, look, um, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. By the way, this is how it normally would happen. His first test is is kind of the normal thing. There would be dew on the fleece because the, the fleece would attract the dew and around it would have dried up in the morning. Um, but what I've highlighted here is um, God has already promised, and he says, well, if you do this, then, then, then I'll, I'll do what you said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Um, I think there's two things here. There's Gideon on the one hand who is, who's looking for confirmation for what God has already confirmed. By the way, that is how we usually try to find God's will. <laughs> looking for confirmation of what God has already told you to do when obedience is the only thing. You don't need confirmation. So we're like Gideon in that. <laughs> but the other thing that's here is God's accommodation. God doesn't rebuke him. This is exactly what happened. <laughs> this passage about the fleece does not show Gideon in a good light. It shows him in a, in a, in a bad light, but, but I want to say real quickly, but just like us. 
God's made all these promises that he'll be with us. He'll never forsake us to the end of the age. He's told us, make disciples among all nations. He's told us what to do. He's told us he's going to be with us. He's told us he's going to be victorious. And then we look at things in our life and say, well, God, you know, if you really want me to do this, he wants you to do it. He wants you to engage. He wants you to share your life. He wants you to trust him. Um, again, Del Ralph Davis is so on target with these, these things. Gideon wants to be assured of the Lord's promise to save Israel through him. Gideon wants to be more sure of Yahweh's sure word. He is hesitant, not unbelieving. It's not the absence of faith, but the caution of faith we see here. And again, I think that's what we can identify with. We identify with this caution of faith. God's given us a sure word. There are some things that are so clear and should be so clear to us, and, and, and we're cautious. Well, should I? Absolutely, you should. <laughs> you should be humble. You should put others better than yourselves. Gideon doesn't stop here. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. <laughs> Let me ask just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground uh, be covered with dew. That would have, this second one is the bigger test. It's just like, well, how in the world is this going to happen? That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Um, why does he give the big test second? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand what's going on with Gideon, but I, I don't understand what goes on with me sometimes either. Lord, you want me to just keep my mouth shut. Um. Well, let me, let me just try to say something in this situation, and maybe that'll make it better. Um, no, you should have kept your mouth shut. I don't know what your version of that is, that what, what the Lord has, has made so clear that he wants you to do, that, that you're kind of testing, well, maybe I'll try this, maybe I'll try this. Um, but, but God's accommodation for Gideon, I think, is as big a message here as Gideon's hesitant faith. God takes us where we are. He doesn't just smack him around. He doesn't say, well, if you're going to question me, then you know what? I'm going to get somebody else to do this. He actually accommodates him, moves along. <laughs> I love Dan Block when he says this, Yahweh is more anxious to deliver Israel than to quibble with this man's semi-pagan notions of deity. God's going to do what God's going to do and sometimes he's not worried about straightening you out. Um, Gideon's semi-pagan notions of deity uh, reminds me of, of one of my favorite books. It's by Bruce Waltke. Um, it, it's called Finding the Will of God. Is it a pagan notion? So many times how we try to find the will of God is like the pagans do. God, I want to know what you want me to do. And so if I pray a little bit more, and if I read my Bible every day, and if I, if I, and if I do all of these incantations, then God, would you show me your will? I mean, that's how the pagans do it. God is not trying to hide his will. It's actually right here and seen in his son. Um, an application here as we move. Trust and obey. Stop making deals with God. Stop the fleece thing. Not a positive thing. Okay, take it off your list. I'm sorry. This is another one of those passages that Trey Howell's going to love because it's one of those passages that, that I'm, uh, I, I, I'm kind of blowing up. This, this is one of my favorite misinterpreted passages of all times. Putting out a fleece, not a good thing. Stop doing it. 
Now, have, have we all done it? Yeah, and God's been accommodating with us, and he's been patient with us. But the real thing is just believe what God calls you to do and do it. Again, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned maturity is, is shortening the time between when you know what God wants you to do and you do it. Maturity is when that time just gets shorter and shorter. This whole thing about God's will um, reminds me, um, a couple of years ago, before this thing called COVID, I mean, when I looked at the dates on this, I was just like, oh my gosh, January of 2020, um, I, I did two messages uh, on determining the will of God. I, I have some resources um, out at the Connection Center from that message. I want to recommend these two things. If you're worried about, well, then if I can't put out fleeces, how do I tell, determine the will of God? Um, two books will really help you. One is by Kevin DeYoung. It's a short book. It's really quick, well-written, um, uh, a very recent book called Just Do Something. Um, there's an article out there by Jen Wilkin. Uh, and then a, a larger, bigger treatment of this is decision-making in the will of God. Um, I, I would encourage you, if, if God's will is something that troubles you, Bruce Waltke's book, Kevin DeYoung's book are very quick reads. The big thorough theological tackling of it is uh, Gary Friesen's book. But in those two messages back in January of 2020, January 5th, I did a message. I'm not going to re-preach it. Um, I'm going to tell you, go look, listen to it. it. It wasn't recorded, by the way. It was just a few weeks after this that we in this room started recording the messages because we canceled our services um, and we started videoing them. So this is pre-video messages for fellowship. Um, and when I talked about the biblical dimension on January 5th, all I did was if you go to the New Testament and you just look up the term God's will, um, you come up with these statements, these 10 things that the New Testament tells you is God's will. It's God's will that we be saved, we be sacrificially living for him, supporting his work financially, spirit-filled, serving well at work, how you work and do your job, set apart, especially sanctified sexually, uh, that we be speaking to God in prayer, we be steadfast during difficult times, that we are submitting to um, God, to governmental authorities, to one another, and it's actually God's will that we be suffering. You just The simple message was, look up God's will in the New Testament. It says these 10 things are God's will. So if you're wondering what God's will is, I'm telling you it's these 10 things the Bible tells me so. Um, the next week I did something on the practical dimension of how you do this, and this is really Bruce Waltke's book, uh, how do you do that? I'm going to tell you, fall deeply in love with Jesus. Just fall in love with him so that you know what he does, you know what he likes, you know what he'd like you to do. Read and obey your Bible. Engage in biblical community. Surround yourself with people who are examples to you and who will encourage you. Consider some practical wisdom. Hey, does this make sense? And then allow God to guide you directly. The problem is we always want to put that last one first. You know, God, guide me directly. And give, give me a direct word, and, and, we, and we're not reading the Bible, we're not, we're not, you know, just thinking about what would Jesus like. Um, I gave you an illustration of my relationship with my wife. I'm deeply in love with her, just like I should be deeply in love with Jesus. Sometimes she gives me a list to do, and I need to do it. Um, I hang out with people who love their wives. I don't hang out with a bunch of people who mistreat their wives. That's the worst thing I could do. I try to read books, listen to podcasts on marriage, and, and grow in some practical ways. And then I pay attention when she tells me directly, would you unload the dishwasher? Okay? I mean, let me go backwards. 
fall deeply in love with Jesus, <laughs> read and obey the Bible. When you get a list, do it. Hang around with people who read the Bible and do what Jesus wants them to do. Consider some practical wisdom, try to grow, and allow God to guide you directly. Now, what would happen if I just lived my life with my wife this way? I'll do whatever you tell me. Other than that, I'm sitting on the couch. I mean, that just doesn't work. What a, love and a healthy relationship is I know her well enough to anticipate it's a helpful thing for me to unload the dishwasher. Now, every now and then I have to go, where does this vase go? Um, how about this colander? I'm just proud I know it's a colander. Give me credit for that. I don't know where it goes, but I know it's a colander. Um, the, folks, it's, if finding God's will is a relationship, that's what you should do to live this out. I'm going to skip on down and skip that message. Go listen to those two messages, January 7th, January 12th, if you want some more on finding God's will. Gideon's finally convinced that it's, it's time for him to engage in the battle. And so what God is going to do is he's going to reduce the, the number of the Israelite army so that only God can get the credit for the victory. Most of us know this story, but I want us to work our way through this pretty quickly here. Um, he makes two cuts, and the first cut is, um, is, a, is a major cut, and it's making certain that we can't get the credit for our own salvation. God God specifically says, this is why he's doing this. Early in the morning, Jerubal, this is the one who contended with Baal, because he cut down the altar in his dad's front yard, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. I'll talk about that in a minute. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 men remained. They've got 32,000 men, and 22 went home. When he said, if you don't want to be here, you can go home. Boy, what would happen if we did it that way? I mean, you know, if I just say, if you really don't want to be here, that's okay. We don't need you. Um, there's an interesting wordplay here. They were camped at the spring of Herod. The word Herod means trembling, terrified. They were camped at terrified springs. And then he said, anybody who's scared, you can go home. By the way, I don't know what the chicken is and the egg. I don't know if they camped at terrified springs and everybody's like, oh my gosh, we're camped at terrified springs. Um, or if they camped at a spring and all the terrified people left and they said, this place is going to be terrified springs. All I know is the place is called terrified springs. Um, it's, it's up in the north. Um, I've got it circled there. Um, and it's um, on, the, on the southeast side of the Jezreel Valley. This is what they're looking out over. This Jezreel Valley has already been the place of uh, one of the battles with Barak and Deborah. Um, but this valley, they are, they are camped on a hill looking out over this valley. And as they look over the valley, they're camped near a spring, and they allow anybody who wants to go home to go home, and they've got 10,000 people left. Mary Evans is really good. The primary statement being made here is that Yahweh, not the army, is their redeemer. And because of that, the situation is not desperate, and their reserve troops are therefore not needed. I don't need all of you guys. God's got this in hand. 
Now, remember who God is dealing with as the general of the army. It's Gideon, who's already said, listen, I'm the least among my tribes. My tribe is the least. I'm the least among these tribes. Are you sure you want me? Listen, if you'll do a couple extra things, then maybe I'll go. And now God has thinned the army out um, and reduced it by more than two-thirds. You know, God is sovereign in all the things going on in your life. And you may be looking around and just going, why is this happening? <laughs> this, this doesn't look like God is setting up victory. It looks like God is setting up something else. Well, consider that perhaps God is orchestrating everything in your life to bring glory to himself. Think about that. Maybe God is orchestrating everything in your life so that you don't get the glory, he gets the glory. And by the way, that is true. God is orchestrating everything in your life so that he gets the glory. That's what he's doing when he's narrowing down the army. He told him, I don't want you to say you could do this. But he's not done yet. There's a second cut. This one's a little more confusing. I called it preparedness, but I'm not really sure what's going on here. I literally don't know what's going on here. The Lord's making sure that the participants are, are willing, is what he said, and maybe prepared. I really don't know. Here's what happens. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. God's going to thin them out even more. So God took the men down to the water. Then the Lord said to him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Now, stop. Don't read the passage anymore. Those who kneel down like a dog and, and get their head down and lap like a, a, a dog with their tongue in the water, that's one group. The other group is the group that kneels down and is scooping up the water into their hand. Who do you choose to go with you? The people with their head in the water are the people who are kneeling and they are scooping. How many, if you know the story, stop. Or if you know just my mood, how I'm setting you up, play along with me. Everybody answer wrongly. How many would choose the people who put their head in the water and lap like a dog? Nobody. How many would choose those who, who are kneeling down and, and they're scooping the water up? The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped like a dog, the ones who stick their head in the water, they're not kneeling. With those, I will save and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. I don't know why he chose those. Now, there's all kinds of literatures to say, well, those guys, they're the ones who are more prepared because they're, and I don't even know what you can say, their heads are in the water. They're lapping like a dog. The other guys are at least kneeling down, but the guys who are kneeling down, they go home. Maybe God's choosing the idiots. Maybe, maybe he's choosing the, the dog tribe to go. I don't, I don't know. Barry Webb is on my side. The fact is, we simply don't know why these, those who laughed were preferred over those who kneeled and scooped with their hands. What we do know is that Gideon's force was reduced to a mere 300 to exclude any possibility that the coming victory could be interpreted as their own achievement. And by the way, I have read this passage and I've tried to figure out, well, maybe, maybe they kneeled in such a way. Maybe there's, there's something archaeologically that the stones were in such a... Um, I got nothing. And here's, here's my application. God doesn't have to explain himself to me or you. 
Sometimes he just says, do this. Take these guys, not this. Go there, not there. You get this, not this. And God doesn't always have to explain himself to you. Graciously, he does most of the time. But the biggest thing God has said is, I'm with you. I'm gracious to you. I'm on your side. And so, engage in the battle. The Lord is so patient with Gideon. He gives him even more assurances. The Lord gives assurance of victory, but, but not because Gideon this time is, is even requesting it. God, I think, just understands Gideon, just like he understands every one of us. And he works graciously with us where we are, with our personalities, with our histories. He works with us to move us along this path of growth. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. Again, as Cheryl Exum said, Gideon's the only person that God talks to directly, and he's telling them, I'm going to be with you. You're going to win. Are you sure I'm going to win? Do the fleece thing. Are you sure I'm going to win? Do the fleece thing again. God here says, I'm going to give them into your hands. If you're afraid, like anybody's wondering if he's afraid. He's a fraidy cat. That is who he is. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged. I'm not telling you you're not going to have to, to go. You're, you still have to go. But, but I'm going to encourage you along the way. Even though I've promised my presence, promised you the victory, affirmed it three times, I'm still going to encourage you. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern people had settled in this valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. They had a huge, massive army down there in the valley. (laughs) Kenway says, The Lord patiently and graciously accommodates Gideon's faults in order to encourage him. So if you're looking down on Gideon at this point and you're not identifying with him, I need you to identify with him and then be encouraged that God graciously accommodates our faults in order to encourage us. He knows where we're challenged. He knows where we're fearful, where we lack faith. And and he's orchestrating things in our life. Some of them look like huge challenges that I don't understand, but some of them is in the middle of that challenge. He says, I'm sending you this to encourage you. So keep your eyes open for the challenge, but keep your eyes open for the encouragements along the way as well. This is a recurring theme. It's a reminder that one indispensable requirement for a leader of God's people is not fearlessness, but obedience. Um, Barak's not fearless, Gideon's not fearless, but they're eventually obedient. Obedience is what God is looking for. He is not looking for superheroes. That idea is smashed in the book of um, Judges. These guys are not superheroes. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he said. By the way, dreams are usually how God reveals himself to the pagans. 
a round loaf of barley bread, the, the phrase is really clear, a dried up moldy loaf of hard bread. This isn't soft bread. This isn't, um, you know, the red lights on at, at um, Krispy Kreme, thank you. The red lights on at Krispy Kreme and a soft donut's going to roll through. No, this is a hard, stale piece of cheap barley bread. And it comes tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Now, I don't know how many people had the dream and how many people interpreted the dream, but at least if one guy had the dream, it spread pretty quickly with the interpretation, or a bunch of people had this dream because everybody is now pretty terrified. The irony is rich. Hearing the promise directly from Yahweh did not convince Gideon. His fleece signs really didn't either. But hearing it from the lips of a Midianite soldier does convince him. Hmm. <laughs> How many times does God use ways to convince you that, that when he finally convinces you, you're able to look back and go, well, I kind of knew this already. Oh, my gosh. I'm so much like Gideon. But Gideon, will the real Gideon stand up? <laughs> Worship and obedience is the only reasonable response to God's assurance. It takes a while, but when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of them with torches inside. They don't have any weapons. They've probably been oppressed so severely, their weapons have been confiscated. All they've got is trumpets and jars that they can put a, a lamp inside of. So, I mean, here's this guy who's questioning, questioning, questioning. Now he's worshiping. He's running down into the camp and he's saying, okay, we're going to win. We're finally going to win. Will the real Gideon stand up? Well, let's see what happens here. The, the victory is going to come because the Lord always delivers on his promises the Lord's always going to, he's going to be with him. He's going to win. They're going to be victorious. They're going to defeat the, the Midianites. We know this. Regardless of the size of our opposition and our dubious spiritual condition, Gideon is not a great example. Not an unbeliever. He's not horrible. Um, boy, he's got ups and downs. He's erratic. In the words of Michelle Knight, he's so terribly relatable Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around, shout the, uh, around the camp, blow your, blow your trumpet and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Wait, and for Gideon? Will the real Gideon stand up? Are you ever going to get this, Gideon? This is all about the Lord. It's not about you. Unless... And maybe this is one of those places where he kind of knew they're afraid of Gideon, so make sure you throw my name in there so they know Gideon's there. Maybe. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Now, this is the darkest part of the night. Just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands uh, the trumpet they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 
While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. They're just surrounding the camp with torches, blowing the horn, and the men inside are all going crazy because, I don't know, at least one guy's had a dream. Maybe a bunch of them had the dream. They've heard the reputation of Gideon, who uh, probably have heard the, the story of him tell, tearing down his father's altar. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. By the way, it's really important. The Lord caused them to do this. This is not a normal thing. I mean, you know, I don't know if, you know, NATO surrounded Russia and we all blew horns and lit torches that the Russians would turn on each other. Um, I doubt that. Um, unless the Lord caused it to happen. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel and Mahola near Tabath. Uh, they're, they're fleeing back to their land. They're fleeing back toward uh, the land of Midian on the other side of the Jordan. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messages throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. They're trying to cut them off before they get back to their homeland. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Zorb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. Obviously they died there and they named these monuments for them. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Orb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. They rout the army. The army is fleeing. Now, we still have chapter 8. Will the real Gideon stand up? We've still got chapter 8 to go. But although, God, although Gideon is God's choice, Gideon is here portrayed as a mixed bag in his relationship to God. Like Barak in Judges 4, Gideon is also reluctant to obey God, and he requires some assurance. But Gideon's need for assurance exceeds Barak's in both number and intensity, and Gideon is far, further characterized by fear in his selfish desire for glory. Again, the book is getting worse. worse. It's, the toilet flush is really going to start to be apparent as we move from Gideon to Abimelech to Jephthah to Samson to unnamed people doing atrocious things. What is the most surprising in this account is not Gideon's feeble faith, which one grows accustomed to seeing the book of Judges, and which we can identify with readily. But the most surprising thing is God's patience with Gideon and his inclination to meet Gideon in his place of weakness. God does not need to cooperate with Gideon's manipulative schemes, yet he does so repeatedly, and he unexpectedly gives Gideon an additional confirmation through the dream. God's actions towards Gideon in the story are totally unnecessary, and they poignantly illustrate his grace in action. Gideon may not be your hero, but God certainly should be. The Lord graciously and patiently provides us with assurances and victory through his powerful strength. This is where I'm landing today. I'm not landing with, okay, I've straightened you out on Gideon, right? Um, what we see here is God graciously, patiently giving him assurances time after time. Sometime he requested, and the one time he just goes, listen, if you're still afraid, I'm going to give you one more assurance. 
But the assurance is not, Gideon, because you're all that. Or, Gideon, you've got enough troops. God has made sure that isn't going to happen. So I'm going to leave you with three next steps. There's a truth, a warning, and a challenge. The truth is about God. The Lord is gracious, and he discloses his will in his word. God's been more clear than you think. God has graciously given us um, really everything we need to live our life trusting him and knowing that he wants us to live like his son, love others. We're treading on dangerous ground when we put out fleeces. Um, God is gracious with Gideon, but I think there are times when, when God says, listen, I've already told you what you need to do. And if you don't do it, you may not get another chance. Um, this happens to the Israelites when they are trying to enter the promised land. <laughs> God says, you need to go in and you need to conquer the promised land. And they said, but there's giants there. <laughs> and God says, okay, well, you don't get to go. And, and a bunch of them rise up and say, oh, we made a mistake. We're going to go. God opens up the ground and sucks them in with an earthquake. <laughs> you don't always get a second chance. You're on dangerous ground. When, when the promises and the will of God is clear and you're cautious. So I want to encourage you with this challenge. Spend more time obeying what you know to be God's will than looking for assurances. I know that it's God's will that I be making disciples, that I love him and I love others, that I make others more important than me, and that I live my life for his glory. If I run everything through that grid, I know pretty much what I'm supposed to do. But God is gracious. He's given us a perfect example in the life of Jesus Christ. He's given us a clear revelation of his character and his plan for us in Scripture. He's given us a great commandment, love God, love others. He's given us a commission, make disciples of all nations. It's pretty clear. Um, and he'll be patient and encourage you along the way. Um, but I think it's time that most of our energy is not spent trying to figure out what God wants me to do, but doing the things you already know he wants you to do. And he'll guide you in that journey. Father, you are so, so patient with us. Our faith falters, and sometimes we look like we're doing a good job, and sometimes we aren't doing such a good job. <laughs> but, Father, you graciously stick with us. You, you never forsake us. And so, Father, I, um, I ask you to continue to get us focused on the things that are important and trust you trust you in everything we do. May the songs we're about to sing encourage us at an even deeper level to believe you are who you are and that you don't forsake us.
you've got a good plan for us and that you'll provide the victory. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.